Hi, I'm Lee Keough, Editor-in-Chief of NJ Spotlight, and I'd like to welcome you to our new conference podcast series. Today's program is from our NJ Spotlight on Cities event, held October 16th, 2015, at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark. This session is entitled Development 2025, and we're fortunate to have three of the most active and innovative developers in New Jersey discuss their expectations for the future. Ron Bate, CEO of RBH Group and President of RBH Management, Paul Silverman, Co-Founder and Principal of Silverman, and Christiana Folio-Palmer, CEO of Community Investment Strategies, talk of how prosperous urban cores are on the way for New Jersey, and that those cities that focus on infrastructure and other long-term issues are the ones that will be most successful. Pete Kassenbach, Executive Director of NJ Future, moderates. Um, so my name is Peter Kassenbach. I'm the Executive Director of New Jersey Future. I'm very happy to be here at this conference. New Jersey Future is a statewide policy organization focused on growing smarter. Uh, we're big believers and supporters and advocates for redevelopment in our cities and towns and keeping our open spaces open all through good land use practices and planning. And what we're here to talk about today is we're going to look at real estate development in our cities through the eyes and experiences of three innovators who are on the ground making real estate development happen. And while we're going to be talking about what are cities going to be facing over the next 10 years, what you're going to hear from these, uh, these developers, their experiences, they're actually doing things that are ahead of their time. So what they're doing now is what other developers will be doing uh, 10 years from now. So I'll introduce everyone real quickly. Uh, to my right is Chris Folio, founder and CEO of Community Investment Strategies, a developer of affordable, affordable housing for the past 20 years with a portfolio of over 3,000 units throughout New Jersey cities and beyond. Uh, to her right is Ron Bate, founder and president of RBH Group and RBH Management. He's participated in over 30 development projects with one of the most notable being Teachers Village right here in Newark. Uh, at the end of our line is Paul Silverman, along with his brother Eric, are founders and principals of Silverman Real Estate Development and Management Firm, with a 30-year track record over 1,000 units and predominantly working in Jersey City. So you'll hear some experiences from uh, Newark, Jersey City, and other cities from around the state today. Uh, we know that our cities are the future. Um, we know that if our cities aren't growing, they're dying. And in order to be growing, we're going to be developing. And developing means redeveloping in the context of our, of our cities. Real estate development is a combination of planned and organic growth. Understanding the trends and forces at play can help us plan better, help us guide that organic growth, and avoid predictable negative consequences. Today, our discussion will focus on current trends in urban real estate development and predictable positive and negative consequences of those trends. So we're going to start off with just a quick 30-second response from each of you. Um, what would you say excites you most about the potential for our cities 10 years from now? Go ahead, Paul. Why don't you start? Well, so I'm doing this 34 years. It's 30 plus, 34 years. <laughs> Anyone else? I see Dan Levin from Jersey City. Anybody else live in Jersey City? All right, so we got a few. 
And uh, hey, how are you, Michelle? Uh, and, and so in the 34 years, we've seen this meteoric growth of our city. So 10 years is almost a small amount of years. But, uh, Go 20 years. But I see, I see uh, we had our city bikes come into the, to Jersey City two weeks ago. So I see the, the rise of biking and walking and, and uh, the return to the city. So it's very exciting. We've got so many projects in the pipeline that I see real strength and, and real strong infrastructure between the, the offices that are going in, the, the uh, beautiful apartment buildings, and the, the big national developers that have now identified Jersey City as a place to grow. So we're thrilled and, and excited about the next 10 years. Yeah, I think um, the next 10 years are going to be very exciting for all of the urban areas in New Jersey because of the work we've done in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we've really set up platforms across the state now um, in urban cords in Jersey City, Newark, Camden, that in the next 10 years are really going to take, um, really start to blossom. Um, and so I think everything we imagine about prosperous urban cores, I think, is on, is on the way for New Jersey. So um, I do affordable housing, and I think um, the cities and the investment that these gentlemen are making are great, but I'm going to be the cautious one in the room (laughs) that I think without a very aggressive urban policy, we're going to wind up with only people that can afford the nice places in the city and the poor that are trapped in the places that don't get reinvestment, and we're going to wind up with more social issues than maybe we even know on the horizon. So I am bullish, but I think uh, a little cautious comment. Um, We have to have a real strategic plan for how the cities develop over the next 10 years. Which we don't necessarily have. We don't have. (laughs) Well, Chris, you've worked in a number of cities in New Jersey. What fundamentally makes some cities work better or revitalize faster than others? in my opinion, uh, for those of you that don't know, I was uh, the president of New Brunswick Development Corporation before New Brunswick was as sexy a city as it is today. Um, and I think when I look back on the New Brunswick experience, um, was that, um, like we're talking about now, the central business district was, you know, what we had to concentrate on. Mm -hmm. I think what people don't understand from that process is that the most critical investment that was made was when I was in New Brunswick, it still was a combined sewer and water system. And so the investments that were actually being made very early on allowed then when a developer came not to have to carry that infrastructure uh, cost on the jobs. So I think cities that... um, are willing to say, and and I will tell you, the first five years of redevelopment in New Brunswick, most people would walk down the street and not know that anything was going on except that the traffic patterns were all screwed up. Um, And I think cities have to be strategic in that sometimes it's not um, the quick hit, but the long-term investment that then is going to be able to generate the opportunities um, that the private development community can come in. So I think the difference is the cities that sell themselves short and quick and the ones that might be in for the long haul. Great. I'm going to talk a little... Did you, Ron? Have, well, yeah, no, I, just to add on to that, I, I do think, it, um, I do think it's, uh, it is about infrastructure. So it's about... 
and I think you're seeing it um, at work. I mean, you when you look at the cities that were talked about, and sort of the cities that are really have been have um, been the attention of heavy investment in, in recent years. You're looking at systems within. You're looking at cities with infrastructure, uh, and not only sort of underground infrastructure, but you're talking about mass infrastructure in terms of mass transit, infrastructure in terms of university and health systems, um, and so forth. And so when you and so. To answer your question, I think it, those cities with those assets are going to want, are going to be the ones that succeed, and the ones that are going to get the attention first. Yeah, uh, talk about infrastructure. Uh, we also look at education and schools. The Jersey City, we're, we're huge supporters of the Jersey City public schools. You know, Thirty thousand kids that recently got uh, more local control. But uh, so we as developers realize, uh, without a good, strong education infrastructure, uh, we, we've got nowhere to grow. Let's actually stay on the education um, front for a little bit. So, uh, so Ron, you've, you're doing a project, just fi- or working on a project, finishing the project, Teacher's Village, that has the word teacher in it. So <laughs> tell us a little bit. <laughs> so we are, we've already completed uh, four buildings of Teacher's Village. The fifth building is TCO on half the building, and in the next few weeks we'll deliver the fifth building. And the sixth building, the final building of Teacher's Village, will be... Uh, delivered in uh, June of 2016. So we are well on our way to executing the full vision of Teachers Village. And yes, and purposely, the name uh, connotes um, a village of educators. Um, uh, And when we thought about this area in downtown Newark, which laid, it was 92% surface parking lot. There are about half a dozen dilapidated buildings there um, with half a dozen viable businesses, zero residents, um, and, and a big swath of the downtown. Um, when we were thinking about that, uh, we, were, we sat around and, and thinking about what, what would energize this neighborhood. And, um, and we quickly became inspired by what was going on here in Newark. Um, the, 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 um, there was, there's been um, a focus on education in this city for, the, for more than a decade now, and, uh, and Newark, quite frankly, is leading the, the, the conversation nationally. I don't, we obviously don't have all the answers yet, um, but certainly that conversation has been happening here for a long time, and, and, and the folks that are involved in that conversation, that conversation locally really inspired us. And, um, um, and and their energy, um, and um, there are folks like Matt Craig here is a teacher, uh, and, and now runs Teach for America down in Camden. Um, you know, the, the energy of, of, of these uh, individuals really sort of was something we wanted to tap into, and so we created um, a community of residents um, that would be uh, for all teachers of Newark to recruit and retain the best teachers in Newark. So we had you know district school, independent school, and charter school teachers that were recruiting. And that we were building state-of-the-art housing for at the center of the community. And we built uh, state-of-the-art new schools there all over retail. And so, um, you know, from our standpoint, we, were, we looked at the, we were inspired by their energy, but it was also a very deliberate plan to your, you know, sort of, and uh, thinking about sort of education mm-hmm. and the infrastructure of education and building new schools um, at the heart of the community, not after the community is built, but before. So we sort of uh, changed it up a little bit and sort of started thinking about sort of that educational infrastructure early on, thinking about a neighborhood that's going to have thousands of residents uh, in coming years and really building out that in- educational infrastructure. 
up front. And, but from, and, and putting that aside, um, it, it was real, from a plan perspective, uh, we were really looking at sort of uses when we just talk about real estate and mixed, you know, mixed uses. We really looked uniquely at schools as an opportunity to replace office. So when we were thinking about our overall master plan, we had assembled a lot of land in the area of Teachers Village was just the first phase. But when we think about the overall plan and the overall neighborhood, first we planned it from end to end before we started anything. Um, and, and, and when we were thinking about those plans, we realized that we needed all three uses in terms in, 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 so all three, uh, the, the three food groups of real estate, so commercial, um, residential, and office. Um, but uniquely in our first phase, where we had the residential for teachers and we had the commercial at the retail at the grade of each of these, at grade at each of these buildings, we uniquely looked at the schools as sort of an office component, a daytime component that would draw um, in our schools, we have four schools, a thousand uh, families twice a day to our neighborhood, and our schools are open six days a week. So it was, it was uh, sort of from a real estate perspective, a use um, play as well. Great. We hear a lot about education being important and sometimes being a barrier to have people move back in. Um, Chris, you've, you've worked in lots of different kinds of neighborhoods. Um, what's the role of sort of these alternative types of schools, whether they're magnet schools, charter schools, um, um, I think the fallacy and the um, at least the affordable housing policy, and when you hear about COA, is that families of modest means um, are chomping at the bit to move out of cities to get to a better school system. Um, so the alternate schools and the reinvestment in those schools in the urban areas really has to be at the I think at the center at least from from my uh, vantage point of um, this balanced housing approach and and having uh, low-income people be able to access quality education within an urban environment I think what's um, uh, most um, troubling to me is the affordable housing advocates who you know I, I build in uh, I've built uh, 750 units in Elizabeth, um, and you know, to say to somebody that lives in a neighborhood um, that their life would be much better if they could move to Westfield. When you talk to young women who are, are raising children, and they say, you know, I'm I'm an hourly worker. Um, if my kid gets up with a fever, I can't just take off of work. And I know if I go down the block, you know, Miss Celia will take my daughter at 6 o'clock in the morning, no questions asked, and, and I get to work. Um, when she moves to Westfield, there's no Miss Seeley on the corner. And so the, the value of the neighborhood and the community is, is too great for most of these individuals to feel like they're mobile to pick up and move. So I think we've really got it backwards. Um, we really should be following models like Teacher's Village, which is really talking about where people want to be, building on the community and services and strength that is already there, than telling people they have to pick up and move. Right. Well, Paul, you're, that's part of your strategy of development as well as neighborhood building. Um, you rent to a lot of couples, um, young families. What, what is it that... Um, People say they need to be able to raise their families in Jersey City in your developments. Sure, uh, neighborhoods, the, the park system is really important. Uh, mm -hmm. Jersey City's invested a lot, along with us and other developers, into the, the city parks and the, the, the areas you can walk to that way. The access to transportation into New York City, uh, you know, having our PATH train, our light rail to the PATH train, our ferry systems, and uh, 
easy access that way. And, and the couples are looking for that. And safety, too. Uh, in the earlier session, we talked about crime in Newark and uh, crime in, in all our cities. Uh, when you have that perception of safety and feeling comfortable, uh, you'll have couples that will stay and, uh, and raise their children. Uh, the other thing you know, I encourage, and, and other developers in Jersey City are encouraging, uh, is to get the parent involvement in the schools. Because we know, uh, you know I raised my children in Montclair, and my wife and I were on every PTA committee, and, and uh, we knew the principals by first name and most of the teachers and all. And so there, too, in, in, in uh, the, the demographic they were renting to and selling to, uh, to encourage them. You know, they're well-educated, and to encourage them to be involved in the schools is really important to help raise that school. Because most of our families that are rented from us are two-parent families, different than much of Jersey City. So uh, we encourage them to be involved in the schools and be on the committees and, and help raise raise the school. It takes a village, as we all know. Great. Well, let's talk a little bit. Each of the places that you develop are different. I mean, we can say cities, but every city, every neighborhood within a city is different. How important are the market conditions in those places that drive your development? Uh, does it change the way you think about doing the development based on the market? Do you choose places that are at a certain a uh, certain strength of market versus other? Um, Paul, let me start with you. Uh, certainly. I mean, uh, yeah. our proximity to New York City is really a huge driver for us. And New York City's doing well and has done, done well the last few years. So that's a huge driver for us and, and that market. Uh, to be able to afford to build a, a building, we just finished a, a 30 plus million dollar building and to be able to finance that and make it work, you have to get a certain amount of rent for it mm -hmm. and it has to be, people have to have good enough jobs to, to afford to live there. You know, it's high rent district now. So yeah, that market is critical to us. And in our analysis, before we put that first shovel in the ground, we have to make sure that we can afford to, to build it. And so the market has to support it. They're very important to us. And who are some of the people that are moving into to your buildings? It's like, a, it's a, a diverse group. I yeah. mean, that's what's so, so much fun about all of our cities. You know, the diversity you have there yeah. from you know, fashion designers to lawyers to uh, people that run successful nonprofits to um, engineers, uh, Google. We have uh, several Google employees. Mm -hmm. uh, one woman got out of college. Day one, $110,000 a year salary. Coming at the day, she graduated from my alma mater, Muhlenberg College. I was <laughs> proud of that. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it's great to see huge diversity, a lot of talent. And uh, you know, as diverse as it is, I think the, the, the common thing is well-educated and uh, creative people. So it's, it's really it's an exciting time for us. So, Ron, I mean, you're, you're in a particular market space in Newark. Uh, Tell us a little about how small can a market be? Uh, we, it, it's funny because we are looking at that right now. There's, um, um, we've, the, a lot of secondary cities are, have come to us to think about sort of workforce housing uh, for their teachers and so forth, and we've looked at a lot of different markets. Um, the, 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 I think there's two main ingredients when we look, you know, so for us it's, it's, it's uh, very interesting because uh, there's teachers in every municipality across the country. So that's an, <laughs> sort of a, an easy market to look at. Uh, the question is how big is the public school system and so forth. But beyond that, when we look at markets, we really think about what is, quite frankly, the public investment um, uh, environment of the market that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, you can't 
build today based on what Paul is saying here. You, you know, market rate, you've got to think rents and so forth. And, but, but when you're building workforce housing and affordable housing, you have the same construction costs. Mm-hmm. So, so the public investment becomes critical in making that work. And so, you know, when you look at a municipality, you think about what the public investment um, environment is. Um, and then um, B, um, there is um, a little bit different uh, the difference in when we look at um, a teacher's village, for example, in Hartford, Connecticut, as opposed to Newark. Um, certain cities um, are status quo, and there will be growth in those cities, and it'll be a very sort of tamed growth overall. When you look at cities like Jersey City, Camden, Newark, I think the, the growth potential is so off the charts because of location that it, it really adds a different sort of analysis when you're looking at your performers 7, 10, 15, 20 years out. But th- that, that, but, but that said, um, um, so the, the opportunities in New Jersey are unique, given the fact that you have that explosive growth potential and a public investment um, platform in the state that, quite frankly, is being modeled nationally, um, and NJEDA in the last 10 years in this state of New Jersey um, and the city of Newark um, and Jersey City and Camden have all really created sort of national models. But outside of New Jersey, um, you know, it, there, it, there's tremendous opportunity in these secondary cities. There is a general, a global and national trend towards cities. Um, and so so when you think about teachers being in every market, you're really looking at the public investment environment and you're really looking at sort of what is the growth, what is that sort of, if it's more tamed, then where are, what does that public investment have to look like? Chris, are there different strategies for different markets? Um, yes. And believe it or not, you know, affordable housing doesn't always uh, apply to the rule, build it and they will come. Um, you still have to have uh, quality housing and something to offer someone. And I think uh, the most interesting thing I thought I could share with you this morning is um, uh, experience that just happened to us in Bloomfield, New Jersey. So we're building a $22 million senior building down the street from Avalon's uh, new fancy uh, market rate housing, across from City Hall, next to a um, historic post office. Would have been a really great market rate site, but I got it first. <laughs> um, and we're, we just started taking applications. It's a 55-plus. First day, 500 applications for 100 units. Um, we usually have huge demands, but that kind of demand is usually for affordable, three-bedroom, family-affordable housing. To have that much pent-up demand in the 55-plus market was really very surprising to me. And then when you went through the list, 50% of the people were over-income. But those 50% of the people couldn't pay $2,800 in Ron's beautiful new building. And I couldn't house them in our building. So from a business strategy, we've now got a second site. And we're going to look at a mixed income, 55 and over, not the highest rents, but individuals that have spent their life in Bloomfield, love the city, want to take advantage of uh, the opportunities that are now coming to them, want to be on a bus route and a train route to the city. and it was almost like, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. You know, it just kind of hit me in the head. Um, but it was, uh, was very interesting. So as I started to really kind of concentrate on this 
very much niche uh, market. And I own about 1,500 senior housing units and some uh, senior health care. Um, I started to think, you know, what would be the campaign for this? It's not going to be the sexy, you know, we've got a great clubhouse and, mm. and uh, the tennis courts. Um, and I see Bill Watson. I'll have a kick out of this comment. So I'm home. My husband happens to be 63, older than me. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, my daughter is quite young for having old parents. And she comes in and she says, I hate him, Mom. I just hate him. And I said, what happened? Well, he took me to the movies. And can you believe in front of my friends, he took the senior discount. (laughs) And in that moment, I thought, wait a minute. This is a guy, if any of you know him, it's Doug Palmer. He used to be the mayor of Trenton, not the one that went to jail. (laughs) And um, he never defines himself as a senior. But he defines himself when he goes to the movies as a senior. So our new campaign is don't think of us as your grandmother's senior housing. Think of us as a great apartment at a senior discount. And I think we're going to be pretty successful. (laughs) Good marketing. That is good marketing. so with, what I'm hearing, though, is that depending on your market and depending on how we're trying to provide housing, there may be a role for the state or local municipalities to provide subsidies, incentives, other things. Um, Paul, what's been your experience? Have you needed those types of uh, incentives or partnerships with the, the city to yes. make your projects work? Absolutely. We get a, a what's called pilots, payments in lieu of taxes, where the, the city gives you a, a break on taxes uh, to encourage development. And as our downtown Jersey City has become more successful and we've been able to get higher rents, our incentives are reduced. So uh, the next project we're working on uh, in Hamilton Park uh, will get only a five-year tax abatement as opposed to uh, 10 years ago we're getting 20 and 25-year tax abatement. So, you know, we, we need it less and less and it's kind of like weaning your child off their allowance and, you know, they're making their own living. So uh, I think uh, the strong cities will not have to subsidize those downtown areas. And then Jersey City, you know, has some, some tough neighborhoods, you know, away from the, the waterfront, away from downtown, where they're still giving the, you know, the, the huge uh, much larger tax breaks. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we've need to do it. You know, it's a, a, a portion and, and a lower portion of our financing, but it's certainly is still important. Okay. Ron, you have a project that's probably in a slightly different market niche yeah. and needed maybe more. Yeah, I think that I, I think Paul's exactly right. It's you know the 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 public investment is called public investment because it is an investment. Um, if we want to create markets, whether it be a specific location or neighborhoods within specific locations, or you want to create a market in low, you know, lower income affordable housing, you know, the, within affordable housing, we have a lot of different levels of affordable. If you want to create a market in space, the public has to come in and get involved. But exactly what Paul is saying is the public investment, the idea of the public investment is to create a market so that the private capital and the private markets move in and take over. Um, and so, um, you know, in Newark, when we started, we were creating a market. Um, and and um, the market is still being created. We've had a billion dollars of development here in Newark. Um, and there's a lot going on. But we're not there yet. But the, and, but the, and the next round of projects will have less public investment. And the idea is in a few years, uh, you won't need the public investment anymore. And, and you can move on and create another market. But these are 
investments and um, and they do yield for the for the municipality and the state. And the question is, where you are, where are you at in the in sort of the cycle in terms of the market creation to determine sort of that pendulum, how far you are towards public investment as opposed to private capital. Chris, how do you feel about uh, where we are right now with uh, incentives? Are they going to be around? Are they big enough? Or are they? No, I, I can't survive without public incentives. So you can guess. And that's appropriate. Know, I mean, I think yeah, what right? you're doing that makes sense. Um, I think the the problem that you have is that at least uh, current thinking uh, at the administration level is that it's a giveaway, and um, my position um, is that affordable housing can be used as an economic development tool. So. Um, for example, if I'm working in the most uh, the rough uh, edge of a city, I'm really investing and protecting that next way. So central business district's hot. The edge is a disaster. I come into the edge to shore it up. Hopefully, by in time, the two meet, and the city then you know uh, really captures the most value that it can. Uh, I give a talk about you know going back to this whole um, senior market. I give a talk about you know senior housing is actually sometimes in certain communities, and I, I've built a project in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, probably not so urban, but um, on a, a redevelopment site that they sat there trying to get these guys to come for a couple of years, and it's a it's a second or or third market tier, and it's going to take a while. So I said, look, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think of like the affordable housing is not economic development. So I said, I'm going to build a senior housing. Let me give you the demographics. Most of the people that move into my building sell a house um, for about two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. They put that in the bank. They um, have a small pension because affordable housing doesn't mean you're destitute. You just have an annual income. The stock market sucks. They're not making a whole lot of money on their pension. So many more people qualify than the vision of destitute old lady with blue hair. So who moves in? So a person who actually isn't the high-end young professional who says, I live in Lawrenceville, but I really want to eat dinner Saturday night in Princeton. I have, I have a whole group that lives across the street from a diner. The diner would have gone bankrupt if I hadn't built it because they're at the early bird special three nights a week. They get their hair done a block away from the place. They use the taxi service. So they may make smaller economic expenditures than the traditional market rate, but if you actually look at the number of small investment over a month's time, it exceeds what some market rate people are spending in the local economy. So... um, that's so thinking of subsidies bent. as investments. Subsidies, I can show them, right. turn a re, you know, give a return to the local economy right. who's actually providing the tax abatement or, or underwriting. Are, you, are any of you concerned that there may not be, that we don't have the right tools or not enough of the right investments to be able to keep momentum going in our cities? No, I'm, you feel good? I, as a uh, developer, I think I've told you in the past, uh, I'm always overly optimistic, unrealistically optimistic. And uh, if we weren't, we'd never put a shovel in the ground and build anything. You've got you to gotta assume it's going to continue and, and, and keep the support. But also, you know, having do, doing this 34 years, you see the ups and the downs. And, mm-hmm. and the, the building we just finished now, people moved in, uh, started moving July 23rd. My brother and I bought that site 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, by the time we, we got the site ready to build, it was 2007, oh, let's wait, and, and we made a temporary parking lot for seven years. <laughs> you know, so, so you just hang on there, and, and, and hopefully you can hang in there, and, and as you start building to an upmarket, you continue again. So yeah, we always have a, a fear that something will be taken away, something, but you hang in there long enough, and, and you get to build it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, the, the truth is, I think we have all the tools. I, mm-hmm. I think maybe what I fear is, is that... Um, that we have the, you know, sort of our will uh, wanes, if you will. Uh, you know, I think we, we, we uh, as, as a nation, <laughs> actually have a little bit of, uh, um, you know, sort of turn our attention too quickly away from problems and, and not sort of see it all the way through. And so I do think we have the tools. Um, we've exhausted the sort of allocations of some of those tools. I hope that... Um, I hope that the the public policymakers realize the investments that they have made have really yielded uh, and yield econ- and, and, is, and is going to yield economic development um, opportunities um, and and and, um, and economics for the city and the state for years to come and um, and we and and we should not sort of pull out too early from our sort of attention to the to the focus we've had and uh, it's working. Um, there's a lot under uh, construction and under development, certainly in our city here in Newark. But just look at Camden and Jersey City is already off the charts. And you know that that mm-hmm. was the, all these markets were created from public investment. So I think I'm, not, I'm I, I I I worry about sort of the amounts and the will to continue to do what we're doing here because if we don't get. Camdens and Newarks and so forth to the point where Jersey City is, um, or you know, or, or certain neighborhoods in Jersey City. I think there's certain neighborhoods that still need it. Um, that that uh, I think that you know we need to cre- we need to make sure that the public investment regime stays in place to make sure that all of these neighborhoods get to where we want to get to because the economics of our state depend on um, creating that e- e- economic development activity that urban cores generate. Right. That's a r- really good point. I mean, you know, in in Jersey City, you know, we focus downtown, but we support the rest of Jersey City. Uh, Brittany Bunny, our uh, manager of community relations, is running a festival on the west side of Jersey City. We have no developments in that area, but she asked the permission to run this big event called the Best Side Festival uh, tomorrow morning. Those of you that want to head to Jersey City for a fun festival on West Side Avenue, right by Lincoln Park, uh, and then also Newark. You know, we have no business in Newark, but we're business supporters of NJ Pack. I'm in this room uh, every three months, uh, listening to great speakers. I'm a huge Devils fan, so I'm in Newark all the time. Last night is the Newark Museum for a beer and chili. So uh, you know, we know that it's important for newer to, to do great. So uh, we, we want a strong state, a strong region. You've had some great successes with partnering with the cities in, in getting developments done. How important is that city infrastructure, the stability to you as developers, and how important is that going into the future? Chris, did you want? Um, I think political stability is uh job one, you can tell that the number of years that we all have to work to try to get a job done, the worst is that when you have a change of administration midstream and you're, you, you think you're pretty far along and you get kicked back uh, to ground zero. I just wanted to comment, mm. though, that um, uh, you know, I know that we're talking about um, Jersey City and Newark, but there's a whole lot of cities in Jersey mm-hmm. that don't have the population numbers to support 
um, development there don't have some of the locational advantages of train stations. Um, and I still think that they have uh, neighborhood fabric that's worth uh, investing in. And although I'm, I, I've gotten ERG credits uh, on a deal on Elizabeth, there's a whole lot of cities that you know aren't Camden. Um, Trenton has a huge allocation that is eligible for ERG. Um, I, I pray. Uh, I know, Peter, you're pretty well uh, healed in Trenton as well. But the without a very significant, um, and I think it's most prevalent in Trenton. I mean, look, it's the state capital. It's still par- part in the French. It looks like a shithole. Um, and that's not for uh, lack of everybody trying, and that's not uh, for lack of... 20 years of political stability, that was a lack of any kind of real major investment by the state of New Jersey, and that was the capital. So can you imagine? I see friends from Plainfield and some of the other cities that struggle um, because just the the natural and locational fabrics of some of those cities are never going to be able to do something as like a natural redevelopment. It's got to have the state behind it. And I think for those cities, we are still pretty far away from a, a, a major policy in the state. All right. Um, let me ask you all about, we're talking about housing, we're talking about markets. We've talked earlier about how markets improve, and we'd like to see them improve to the point where they function um, with less subsidy. Um, sort of a dirty word that comes up a lot of times when we talk about urban redevelopment is gentrification. Um, is it good or bad? Well, that's a <laughs> tough question. I, 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 it has good and bad parts to it, certainly. You know, the good part is you know, it takes abandoned buildings and makes them beautiful and, and uh, it really improves the neighborhood. But then you do push out people that have been there a long time that can't afford to live there anymore. So that's the bad part. And, mm-hmm. and that's always a challenge for any of us developing and changing neighborhoods, you know, the people that are there sometimes do get pushed aside or, or further away, and, and it is a challenge. And I don't have an answer to that. I think it's a mixed bag. I think that we need to generate economic development in certain neighborhoods, and we need to create neighborhoods or recreate neighborhoods and redevelop neighborhoods. But I do think from a plan perspective, it is a mistake to just push out everything that was there. I think, uh, and I think that this is going to bear out, and I think developers in the future are going to realize that, and, and, and it, that you have to work with the existing community. You have to preserve historic context of the neighborhood, and you have to preserve certain institutions and, and, and ensure that those that are currently living in the community can stay in the community. And, and that's why, you know, when you build a neighborhood, um, you and, and I think we've made a mistake as a nation. I really do. I think it's not a mistake. You can't help it. But, um, but you know, when you have just sort of free-flowing capitalism, you know, you, 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 private developers make private sort of decisions. But if we are, if we are talking about a state plan or we're talking about a municipal plan or a, a neighborhood plan, uh, it's really got to be thought out. You need to have a really, truly vibrant neighborhood. And a vibrant neighborhood that's not just one in the short term or medium term. I fear what's going on in, in, uh, you know, in Manhattan, um, that it's going to be a boring city of very wealthy people. 
It's you need to, and thank goodness for rent stabilized and rent controlled units that preserved about a million units of di- socioeconomic diversity. Um, but you need socioeconomic diversity in a neighborhood. And so when you think about plans, you have to think about affordable. You have to think about middle income. You have to think about market rate. And so I think that I, I yeah, I don't like the word gentrification. I think it's we need to be thinking about this holistically as redevelopment and community development. And I think it's a mistake for us not to be thinking about it from end to end because the vibrancy of your community is, um, is, um, is, is at stake. Maybe we should get rid of the word gentrification. <laughs> well, one of the things in Jersey okay. City, uh, we have a really strong historic preservation law. So we've got you know, our seven-story apartment building next to these two- and three-story brownstones that will never be removed. So it's great. So it's keeping a lot of people that are there many years, and that historic preservation is, is a great tool that, that we use in, in Jersey City. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting point to, to go down that road. I mean, one of the things that all of our cities have is that they're old. And so can we, can we use that, that fabric? How important is it that we use the fabric, the buildings, as we plan, as we, as we develop? And I think we've learned lessons. That's not, you know, we get rid of that, some, that stuff sometimes at our detriment. But I don't know if the experiences of how that's worked well for you, you think that's the future? I, I think that, you know, I think we've got to be careful there too, right? We can't make these holistic sort of um, um, remarks. In Newark, there's a lot of historic buildings that don't have a lot of whole historic elements. They were put up quickly. They were, you know, they never really had much value in terms of preservation. Just because it's old doesn't mean it should stay. Mm-hmm. Um, significance probably the key. Right, exactly. So, and, but 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 when there are significant buildings and there are contributing buildings, it's an asset for the neighborhood, and you should be building to the. It, it should inform your design of your new building. It should be inform the sort of feel of the neighborhood, and um, and um, and you can take a you can take a lot out of uh, that sort of rhythm in inspiring your design. Um, and so, yeah, we, we do have to, I, I, think we, I think it's really important to preserve assets. I think there are certain assets that people want to preserve that are not worth preserving. <laughs> so, you know, it, it really is sort of, you have to look at it from a holistic standpoint and from a planning standpoint. I saw last night, I took the PATH train from Jersey City here, walked to the Newark Museum, and walked past the Haynes Building under construction, mm-hmm. and I see the old Haynes and Hain and Company sign is being preserved, and, you know, much of the structure being preserved. And it's great. So, you know, it gives you that history and that charm, and, and it's what people really want to see, and it makes it a great place to live. You keep that history. Right. Chris, how do you think about not just the, the old buildings, but the sort of community fabric? Um. Our whole co- company is based on, you know, trying to uh, improve the fabric. I would echo a lot of the conversation. Um, I think the biggest issue, and I think these guys would uh, agree, is that, you know, a lot of times the rehab is more expensive than uh, new construction. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember being challenged about using an old historic school for uh, a senior affordable job. The community was really... Uh, committed, and I kept saying, but you know, they're going to be uh, narrow units with hardly any natural light. And I know you really want this, but are you, do you want to have something that people live well in, or do you just want to have a landmark that you can point to? And we actually walked away from the deal because at the end of the day, the two really have to equal each other. And then sometimes I just don't think it works well. Um, mm-hmm. So. It is critical. I mean, one of the buildings in Teachers Village, the, the final building that we're building now, is on a site that we actually had a historic 
it, it was a historic building in, in so far as, um, you know, actually the 12 step plan for Alcoholics Anonymous was written in the building. So there was, a, <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, a historic site, if you will. Mm-hmm. And there was this shell of a building that just was open to the elements for 30 years. And we tried desperately to salvage at least the, the, the structure, uh, because we were able to get some market sort of layouts. It's true. I mean, you, sometimes it's just not commercially market feasibility in terms of these structures. There was feasibility in the structure, but we dealt with a building that was open to the elements for 30 years. And as we started doing more and more borings in terms of testing sort of the, the existing structure and te- text, uh, testing the constitution of the concrete, we realized you, the, the building department said, we won't let you occupy this building. And that's some and that's an issue too. I mean when you're looking at historic buildings. So that's why it's really got to be strategic. It has to be strategically done and when possible like Haynes it's, it can be a beautiful project and a beautiful contribution to the neighborhood. Well, you've identified the downside of old also. Yes. Uh, and so our cities have a lot of old infrastructure whether it's pipes in the ground uh, how concerned are you that that may stop development or that may slow down development if we don't do something about that? Or is it a concern? I'd say yes, yeah. it's certain, certainly a concern. Uh, in the neighborhoods we're developing, and there are replacement, uh, PSCNG has been digging up all the, the old gas lines, putting in these new plastic lines that won't leak when it, we get another Hurricane Sandy flooding. So, uh, you know, it's, it's temporary hassle roads being closed, but it's a you know, 50 to 100 year future of the gas line. So we're thrilled about that. Uh, a lot of sewer replacement projects with the Municipal Utility Authority, a lot of repaving going on. So that, we, we definitely worry about that and, and keep that in the focus of the municipality. It's so important to have that because you can't flush your toilet, you're in trouble. <laughs> That's a quote, right? <laughs> I don't, you know, when I think about it, I don't think it's a, it's a threshold issue. But it's a concern, right? In other words, when we look at these sites, we're, we are deathly afraid at this point when we open up the street what we're going to find there. Um, it, 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 just from the standpoint of we have no idea what's in there. So we have all these maps in the city of Newark and so forth, and you open up the street, there's stuff there that no one even <laughs> knew, nothing was mapped. And so, so from, a, some, from an infrastructure standpoint, it's a concern on, it, it's a concern that has to be dealt with in the development process in terms of cost mm-hmm. and in terms of time, which when you're struggling to get projects out of the ground, as is given sort of market rates and so forth, it, it, it's, a, it's another consideration on the table that has to be considered. It's, a, it's another obstacle. I wouldn't say it's a threshold obstacle, but it's an obstacle and it has to be considered in each development plan and it's additional cost and time to the project that has to be dealt with. And that's why I think, you know, when you talk about sort of, you know, the pilots and TIF financing that we have here in New Jersey through the redevelopment area, through long-term tax exemption and, and redevelopment area bonds, I think, you know, I think the future of that is uh, is helping to deal with these infrastructure, these site-wide and site-specific infrastructure issues that you have because because we are going to be dealing with this for we've had gross under uh, investment um, in our urban infrastructure, and there wasn't there weren't people there to support the need for it. But we're getting there again, and we're going to have these we're going to be making these investments for decades to come. Concerned about the climate change, flooding, any of these long term issues, or same thing? Flooding, Concern, you know, but not threshold. Hurricane Sandy, we had you know two, three feet of water in our streets, which resulted in you know major, major uh, 
destruction in our building. So uh, the new building we just finished, we raised all the components, all the electrical uh, above the flood zone. Our retail spaces have no basements. We put mezzanines in instead. So we're adapting to it. But every retailer that was flooded is still in business now and better than ever. They rebuilt. You know, they, they had a tough year when Hurricane Sandy hit, but they've rebuilt. They, they're more resilient than ever. Uh, it's thick in their skin, as most of us, when we go through adversity, you, you come out stronger and better. So um, I think it, we as a, as a people can, can rise from all that and, and learn from it. Does, has it changed any of the way you look at sites or mm-hmm. what you do? Um, we just participated um, with the Enterprise Foundation to look at uh, design elements. It was specific to affordable housing, but one of the most interesting things that we learned in housing a lot of elderly um, is that, you know, completely unprepared. And um, we had buildings um, all through the state that may not have had the level of flooding but um, didn't have electric for two to three weeks um, and hot water issues and things like that. Elderly notoriously will not leave their homes, so it was a a lot of fun. So in our design, um, Ella, we looked at everything. We now, you know, we always had generators. We now have more of the areas on uh, generator support. But one of the most interesting things that I think we've done in our designs is in our buildings, we usually have a community space, a community room. And that would usually have, you know, men's room and a, a woman's room. What we've done is added showers that are locked um, uh, during the normal. But in an emergency, those uh, bathrooms are on the generator, and we would be able to rotate people so that they could actually take showers while they're in. Um, We have... uh, uh, on our website, and we do a lot more training for individuals as to you know what the responsibilities because I think the biggest lesson that I had, and i don 't know if you guys had this as well, but people look to the landlord as um, you got to help me um, and so from you know we actually store now pallets of flashlights, even mm-hmm. though we tell people have them we list last us scare uh, be able to have flashlights guys if one of our buildings goes down. Um, and I didn't realize um, the amount of um, uh, demand on uh, the managers and the infrastructure as a landlord to be a social service agency in the middle of a crisis. And I think we're all somewhat sensitive now that that's a role that we have to play. Absolutely, yes. Great. All right, we're going to do one more lightning round. You guys each get to pick <laughs> one project uh, that you think really exemplifies where we're going, uh, where our cities are going in the future. So Something we're working on? Yeah, it could be you're working on it now. Oh, well, you just sure. well, it. I think uh, Hamilton Square is probably a great example in Jersey City. We took the old St. Francis Hospital Complex. Mm-hmm. It was uh, closed and uh, we, we reopened uh, one third of it so far. We've done the first phase where we transformed this boarded up hospital building to 124 condominium units and 14 retail spaces, including a wine shop and a health club and a pediatrician and a psychotherapy practice and a dance studio and uh, more and more and more, and, uh, and transformed it into a walkable. Uh, urban neighborhood where, where people can live and, and it's right on a park and they can walk to the train to be in the city or drive to the west to, to uh, law firms and, and energy companies and wherever they might work. So it's, it's a great model of transforming you know, an underutilized asset. You know, we call it um, um, adaptive reuse. So are you taking that existing buildings? We didn't demolish the buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used three out of the, the four buildings there uh, for this project. So um, 
to us as a model of what can be done in our cities. Excellent. I won't talk about Teachers Village, though I think there's a lot of models and stuff for us going forward and certainly going to be guiding a lot of our principles. But I'll talk about another project that we're building in the East Ward, uh, in the Ironbound section of Newark. Um, we are we we are building a, the largest vertical farm in the world, indoor farm, um, and it's technology based. It's not a greenhouse. It's not it's uh, aeroponics, but it's soilless, sunless. It's it's you know 16 day crop cycles, 90 percent less water. It's environmentally friendly. So the the technology itself is uh, just absolutely game changing, not only for Newark for, but for New Jersey and for this neighborhood. And what I'm and but I, I think the real example for us and sort of where the future is going is this was an industrial site, uh, a brownfield site in the Ironbound that was surrounded by some op- some other um, 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 brownfield sites. One was a Superfund site that the city had already in the decades prior had already been working towards cleaning it up and creating open space out of it. And I think the model that you know, and, and so the and so and the community became very fond of the open space, and it was, a, it was sort of a very utilized community asset. And we had this industrial site in what was a former his uh, uh, industrial neighborhood that was sort of converting. Um, and so we worked with Ironbound Community Corporation uh, to figure out what the community was looking for, what they wanted to see there, um, and um, and and interestingly enough through a charrette came out the fact that the community wanted jobs wanted to be able to walk to their jobs wanted green jobs though (laughs) they didn't want all the trucks and all the noxious odors that they were accustomed to wanted green jobs so we had a very tailored mandate (laughs) but we found the perfect tenant Um, and because of that the community embraced it and so and 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 we have and the ironbound community corporation and and our tenant we put together in a marriage to create a job training program and i think the model there is is just um you know even on industrial sites um um you know we are building in communities um you have a community around you and the best projects and the best visions come from even narrowly tailored mandates um, and um, and I think us as developers are going to start to realize that, and um, um, and um, and there's value created not only for the developer but for the community when you when you sort of undergo development in that fashion. Great. When will that open up? So we're under construction. The first phase will open up um, end of January. The first phase and the balance, um, I think, sometime end of next year. Exciting, yeah. Chris. Um, I would look at an Elizabeth project, which was an old uh, Section 8 job that um, we acquired. It was 350 units. I see my friend Maria Mayo out there was helping mm-hmm. me. Um, it is. Uh, it, it had been gang-infested. It's the place that I stay up at night and worry about. Um, we were able to... Uh, completely redevelop 50% of the site. We look like we'll, through a renovation and new con- uh, some new construction, demolition, and, and also a hydroponic farm because <laughs> they want jobs as well and not as big as yours. Um, but we have an agreement with Kane University around the corner from us that so we'll be supplying their uh, their restaurants, so very, very local, uh, a lot of local partners in it. I think um, the lesson there is this was a um, really an island of poverty surrounded by one of the strongest um, uh, neighborhoods in Elizabeth, the highest tax-paying district. Uh, this project was pulling that neighborhood down. The reinvestment of this as a model um, 
we'll be able, I hope, not only stabilize uh, the downturn from a tax rateable and sales point, but actually enhance it um, from the individual standpoint beyond the real estate. Um, the residents were living in a really bad building. We take the same residents and we put them in a new building. We've had no gun violence, no drug arrests, nothing in the new buildings. Now, we have a lot more uh, security and we can uh, manage it a lot better. But I think environment, you know, and uh, investing in the people that are living there and having respect for them and Mm -hmm. holding them accountable to have respect for the new buildings um, is... It, 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 it's amazing the impact that that can have. And um, so for me, that that's a model that I'm really proud of because we truly will live up to, you know, you want to uh, uh, leave a place better than you find it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's our, our goal here. Right. Thanks. I know we have a couple of minutes for questions. Is that? Yes, we do. <laughs> Wow, now it's really on. Yes, we have a couple minutes for questions, and we have some already. Um, if you have a question, yes, please raise your hand, and we'll get a, um, an index card to you. Um, so the first one is, um, in terms of redevelopment, what are we doing differently in New Jersey uh, than they've done in places like Washington, D.C., New York City, Philadelphia? Um, because in those places, in many cases, um, redevelopment has changed the ethnic and cultural characteristics of communities. I don't know. Question. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not familiar with those other areas you mentioned. I can't help you with that. I, I do think that uh, the one thing, the, what we're doing here in New Jersey that's different is that um, a lot of that, uh, a lot of development in the cities you mentioned, uh, Washington D.C. less, but uh, and actually Philadelphia less, quite frankly. But there was there was a lot of organic growth um, uh, by virtue of the size of the cities and by virtue of the economics, the local economics that were certainly better than the economics in, um, in New Jersey. And I do think that the public investment regime in New Jersey is unique. The stuff that's been created, the ergs, the the earlier iteration of urban transit up tax credits, the you know all that stuff was unique to this state. And um, and there was and there was public policy attached to those investments. So there was a plan behind it. So you know you know nexus to mass transit, um, green building standards that were that were um, mandated um, um, by these allocations and so forth. So I think that you know from sort of from that standpoint, it, it, you know when you have sort of and that and that's sort of what the opposite of thinking. When when a marketplace needs public investment and you have developers willing to make investments the public the the public should be excited about the public investment because the economic development comes there from but also there's an opportunity to to dictate to some extent uh, you, if you dictate too much the developer is going to run but to some extent public policy and community policy can be influenced by a municipality or a state's involvement. And I think what's different here in New Jersey is, is that you had that you, you had this real need for public investments in the urban cores, and there was public policy, good public policy attached to it. And, um, and, and I think that's different than, uh, than sort of just organic growth happening on its own. 
And you just mentioned the um, public investment regime. There's a question about, uh, I guess, to get into a little more specifics about how that built the market in Jersey City. How public investment? Yes. Well, I mentioned earlier about the tax abatements. Early on, we were getting these significant tax breaks uh, to allow us to build and and make it work in the marketplace. So I think that that's very important. And then the uh, the city's investment in the light rail system, a lot of that's federal money, but we have a light rail train that goes from the south end of Hudson County all the way up through Hoboken. And that if you look at every light rail station, there's huge development going around each one. So, so that's a, a, a great example of uh, public investment to spur that development that's going on. Um, there's a question here. I think it was mentioned um, briefly. Um, there are a lot of cities that in, this, in the state that have fewer of those desirable assets, you know, the train station or the, you know, being right across the river from Manhattan. Um, what what is what are the potential opportunities for for uh, redevelopment there, um, and what has to happen in order to attract builders like yourselves into those places? Um, I, I'll take a stab at this. I think one of the things in terms of obviously we all use um, pilots. Uh, there used to be infrastructure banks, which I think the state hmm. needs to look look again because those are those are the communities that are going to need uh, help to prime the pump for a developer to come in because there's going to be have to be in a, uh, a tremendous advantage uh, to bring market rate jobs uh, market rate development specifically. But you, you mentioned Philadelphia, and I have to say that I don't agree that across the board Philly did it you know, wrong. I think they got some things right. One of the things that I think jumps out at me, and but for this venue, I really can't name a city in New Jersey that really capitalized on the arts as an economic development opportunity. And I think if anybody drives through Philly and you see those Im- immense murals mm-hmm. that... Even if it's a really crappy building, that mural makes you think something's happening. And um, I think we have um, kind of lost sight of the arts investment as a component of the economic investment. And I'm hopeful that maybe that might find its way back into the fabric of the discussion of how to help those cities. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest that Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. <laughs> cities are very thriving economic development centers, for sure, and some of my favorite cities. Um, but I, just sort of in terms of perspective of how, what we're doing a little bit differently here in New Jersey mm-hmm. and how that relates. And But I agree, the investment on, on the arts in each of those cities has been phenomenal. And, you know, the current administration in New York, Blasio administration, um, has a has a cre- has a uh, has, has a guidelines. They just did a whole study on the creative uh, economics of New York City, and and the the economic impact of the of the arts and the number of jobs created by the arts. And you're absolutely right. That is a tremendous economic development generator that needs to be focused on as part of any plan. So that allows me to invite all of you. November 6th, we're having our next art show in our lobby at the Majestic. <laughs> <laughs> so we do, we do six art shows a year. You every paid two me for that <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but you know, it's in uh, serious support of the arts and, and community. Uh, we have two lobbies that are big enough for, for art gallery space. And, and every two months, we have a, a cocktail party for the artists. And, and all the, the neighborhood shows up. And, and, uh, and it's a great way to, to spur there. Every artist sells pieces to our residents. I mean, it's, it's a great thing. It's something fun to go to and cultural thing. And, and like between murals or art shows and all, you want that. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. really important to have. So I have an invitation if anyone wants. <laughs> so I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I've been told 
by several people now, including my boss, that we've got to wrap up. And boy, I'm going to listen to her. Um, and we don't want to keep you from your lunch. So thank you so much. I'm sorry we didn't get to all the questions, but maybe you could, um, you know, kind of pigeonhole our. Um, I do need to run. I'm going to leave immediately, but my email, my phone number is on our website, silvermanbuilding.com. Take a look. Call me whenever you'd like. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. For more information on NJ Spotlight or to offer comments, please go to njspotlight.com. To learn about this specific conference, visit njspotlightoncities.com. Production services were provided by professional podcasts on the web at beingthemedia.com. For everyone here at NJ Spotlight, this is Lee Keo. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.